Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste. Welcome, friends. I hope you're entering the new year in good spirits. So lovely to be with you, Tara. Really good to have you, Roland. And I'm going to do a little bit of an intro of who you are so people know a bit more. And then I have so many questions uh, to ask you. So Roland Griffiths is most known probably as a scientist, researcher, and professor at Johns Hopkins. And He's a leader in clinical research and psychedelic use for uh, those with cancer, those struggling with addiction, with depression, actually a number of domains, and really is responsible for uh, this renaissance, this resurgence of interest in this domain. Uh, Roland's a dedicated, long-term meditator, many decades And in his personal life, he's had a recent diagnosis of incurable cancer. So he's facing his own mortality. So we'll be talking about all of this, including a very exciting endowment, funding psychedelic research program focused on spirituality and well-being in healthy people, which to me has huge implications and promise uh, for our world. Um, And the last thing I'd like to say is uh, we first met 10 years ago, just looked it up, um, and Roland was doing a study, the effect of psychedelics on experienced practitioners, meditators, and I was sharing the word with other people I knew, and I went up myself to Hopkins to apply to be in it. I didn't fit the criteria due to a medication I was on, but my husband, Jonathan, participated. But during that visit to Hopkins, that's when I first met Roland, and I was immediately struck um, by just deeply wise, present, accessible, kind human, you know. And in time, I I learned more. Uh, Roland participated in one of the local retreats we were leading, and I got to know him more socially, met his now wife, Marla. And just to say, Roland is a true inspiration for me in many ways. So I feel really, really grateful to have him join us. And now I'll speak to you, Roland, to have you join us. So again, thank you so much for your willingness. Thank you, Tara. And right right back at you, I, I felt... Uh... A, a connection from uh, day one when we met and uh, and Marlon and I have so appreciated we've done two two retreats now oh, it's two. Uh, with okay. you yeah yeah and uh, both of which were really lovely so mm, it's mm. wonderful to to join you so since we started talking about retreats maybe just to begin and share with us what drew you to meditation, what kind of meditation, uh, what you're practicing now, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I grew up without any religious training or background uh, to speak of. Uh, I flunked out of confirmation class for <laughs> sixth grade. <laughs> 
I became curious in medit- about meditation in graduate school when I was at the University of Minnesota. This would have been about 1971. And uh, a local meditation teacher out of S- Swami Rama's tradition mm-hmm. uh, uh, was there. And uh, I was intrigued by this idea that this methodology meditation had been developed over thousands of years to explore inner experience. And I, I recognized and was deeply curious about that, although I had no training. And a matter of fact, my graduate school training was pretty antithetical to that because I was trained in experimental analysis of behavior, Skinnerian approach that really puts emphasis on behavioral output and and has a jaded uh, understanding or jaded view of what is accessible from uh, interior space. But long story short, uh, I did, as so many people do, I think, on first encountering meditation as I tried it, and three minutes seemed like three hours, and I just, <laughs> I could not. I just didn't get it. And nothing, nothing lit up for me. And so I, it dropped out. And it was only uh, 25 years later that a good friend of mine got involved initially with Siddha Yoga here in, in Baltimore. And, uh, and I became a, once again curious about it. And, and, and I can't explain why it was different, but in this case, it was. And there was something intriguing and something that opened up to me about meditation practice. I became deeply curious about meditation. I actually considered at one point dropping out. At that point, I was a full professor with an international reputation in clinical pharmacology, mostly drugs of abuse. And I considered dropping out altogether of the university and going off to the ashram in uh, India. Uh, I started reading a lot about different meditation traditions, started reading about religious traditions, and just became deeply curious about what that was about. And and at the point where I was seriously considering stepping away from university, um, someone brought my attention to psychedelics. And I had had some, what I'd have to describe as trivial experiences back in uh, in college with psychedelics, none of them meaningful. And so, so I wasn't pulled toward them, but it got me to reread that literature and being curious about the nature of opening experiences. I thought, well, gee, maybe this is an opportunity to combine my my training and my expertise in clinical trials and psychopharmacology with what I'm now very committed to exploring. And that's my own personal unfolding of this path forward, exploring the nature of mind and the nature of self with my professional expertise. And so that brought us into the study of psilocybin. We initiated at the time, the first study to administer a high dose of a psychedelic, in this case, psilocybin, to healthy volunteers who were uh, who were psychedelic naive. 
and the results were beyond anything that I might have imagined in terms of being these dramatic, pivotal experiences. They're opening experiences. They're awakening, classic awakening experiences that people attribute long-lasting positive changes in moods and attitudes and behavior months or years afterwards. And having worked with many drugs of abuse and and mood-altering drugs at that point, I kind of immediately recognized, one, how unusual that effect is. There's no other drug class that, that provokes these kinds of experiences to which people attribute these enduring long-term positive changes. And two, the convergence of the nature, some of the phenomenology of that experience with opening experiences, generally mystical type experiences that have been reported within meditation traditions and within religious traditions for uh, for thousands of years. So, so, so let me just ask you a question about that, because I kind of want to drop into that a little more, which is, you said you were having opening experiences that got you so cur- curious, you almost dropped out to pursue them. What, for you, was an opening experience like? Can you describe, like, describe it in a way so I'd know what it was like for you when yeah. you had those initial opening experiences in meditation? Well, I would say something started happening in meditation. There was an opening up and a curiosity about interiority that had not been there before. And so up up to that point, I think I I was virtually completely identified with the voice in my head, the narrative mm. structure mm. of who I thought I was. Mm. was limited to that voice in the head that greets you in the morning and said, okay, yeah, what, what, yeah, what are you doing today? Let's look at the to-do list. And and so there was a sense that there's something beyond that. uh, And there's a, a, a field of mind, the nature of mind that I, I just was largely ignorant of. And, um, and so it would though it was those experiences and and let's see if i can explain what's what's different there's just a, a much larger context to the field of consciousness the the background foreground so, sort of thing when one's identified with that voice in the head or the objects immediate objects of consciousness and kind of losing the fact that those are appearing in this much larger field of consciousness. And would you say, um, and, and I'm tracking you, that it's it's kind of the difference between living inside a story, you're living inside a narrative, and opening up beyond the narrative so you can see the thoughts in your mind, but you realize that what you are is larger than the thoughts. You sense that you are part of, or your consciousness is a field that's bigger than the thoughts and the ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in classic meditation, you know, instruction, think of the thoughts as, you know, clouds passing in the sky. But what you're looking for is that background. Now, that was accompanied by, uh, so this uh, expanded consciousness, if you will, and accompanied by, let's see, a sense of not only wonder and and truth, there's something something really important and true 
about these experiences. But there was also a sense of joy that mm. came mm. up, the Ananda part of mm. it. And at that point, I had not studied classic mystical experiences, which I now have. I I I have some understanding of what at least I think are the important components of these opening experiences. I, I didn't have have that as a template to to put on that. But let's see. But if I kind of reflect on it, um, you know, classically, those opening experiences, as I now understand them, you know, are comprised of this sense of the interconnectedness of all things, this sense of unity. And that can be both a total void and it can be a total fullness. And, uh, and I certainly had that kind of uh, experience. There's something about that background uh, that that can be devoid of objects of of consciousness, and then that sense of the truth value. There was something mm. important and interesting about this, uh, and then the. Uh, and then there was this uh, joy that came out of those uh, experiences. And the other components of it is a sense of timelessness and 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 uh, spacelessness, which come out in the ineffable quality mm. that you can't put it into words. So there were many of the features of the classic mystical experience, but I can't say that there was one time where I sat down in meditation and then I'd gotten very serious about meditation. I was doing, uh, yeah, I was meditating uh, two plus hours a day. I was going on retreats. I was doing uh, intensive meditation and reflection within the Siddha Yoga uh, tradition. And and also with attendant, uh, what they would attendant readings or scriptural readings um but there yeah there was something deeply important about that investigation for me and, and then you you did shift to vipassana so i'm curious what what ended up drawing you to vipassana yeah so after after the psychedelic work started going on and and I think w- one thing I wanted to say is uh, that I went in to the research with psychedelics with a good bit of skepticism uh, because mm-hmm. what I thought is I-, I had the authentic coin of the realm here with meditation, and I and and I looked at some of these psychedelic proponents and felt quite skeptical about, and they did not present in a way that I would think that one who might be close to enlightenment, whatever that means, they, they didn't look like that. Mm. And I was suspicious about kind of the zeal and the over enthusiasm. Uh, but, but the, the results of the study were just so remarkable to me that it just drew me in. And that's been a, a real focus of my uh, research uh, ever, ever since I was actually quite reluctant to try psychedelics myself because one, I thought it might skew my ability to do uh, empirical research. And two, I thought there was a huge risk 
uh, to the field if I were identified as a user, as a, as a proponent, which I, I guess I, I might consider myself to be one now. And, and, and many years after we started this research, I finally waded back in uh, to some limited psychedelic use. And so I can affirm that relationship. Let's see. So what got me involved with Vipassana? Started doing retreats at IMS and, and, and Barry. And I think as my practice deepened, I, you know, I, there's some elegance about focusing on the nature of mind and not grasping for experiences that I thought was of deep value. And of course, meditation is is complex and there's so many different uh different forms of it i also think scientifically uh the neutrality that i experience with the at least the u.s vipassana teachers is uh you know agnostic to uh, mechanisms supernatural or otherwise that are kind of forefronted in some of these other uh, traditions. And so I'm, you know, I'm bred as a scientist, a skeptic, uh, you know, albeit a curious one, but, you know, I can't, I can't uh, embrace or accept uh, beliefs, you know, based on authority. And there's so much of what was, goes on in some traditions that really makes that a, a requirement. And so, um, so yeah, I felt more home in mm-hmm. Buddhism a, as a tradition. But I, I do, I do value the, I, I, I do value the experiential components of what can emerge, you know, and and, um, and the different traditions are uh, teach differently about that. So, what I'd like to hear from you then, because. You've continued with Vipassana, you've continued, your mind's continued to bring that curiosity and have openings in your own way. And how has that interweaved with your psychedelic use? And now I'm talking personally, how the openings from meditation and the openings from psychedelics have corresponded, reinforced, whatever you've discovered on that. Yeah. Let's see. So, um, so I found meditation to be this really valuable approach to understanding the nature of mind, at least as that's how I'm, I'm experiencing it. And there is this uh, sense, as we've been talking about, it's the background sense of awareness with objects emerging within the field of of consciousness and uh and the and the deep teaching about not not to become attached to those those objects that you have a freedom within the landscape of of mind uh to choose what whether or not to be involved and to catch yourself uh when you can about not getting just pulled pulled off and in a in a direction and and so that started meshing with the psychedelics because these experiences are 
at least now the way we give psychedelics in the research setting is uh, focused on introvertive experiences. So we give high doses of, and the compound we've worked most with is, is psilocybin to people who are prepared. They're in the presence of two sitters or guides or therapists. Uh, and they're using eye shades and headphones. So we're, we're asking them to direct their attention inward. And, and, you know, and that's only one form of immersion experience. You can have extroverted experiences as well. But for experimental reasons, we have focused on this introverted experience and in a, in a container. But, uh, but the instruction to people who, have had no uh, prior meditation experience and are are so attached to their narrative. The, essentially, the instructions we give amount to, I think, a crash course in mindfulness. Mm, uh, that's prior. so interesting. Mm-hmm. So what we tell people is, um, yeah, you're going to have this experience. Uh, it may or may not be pleasant. Uh, it can take all kinds of shapes and forms. There may be visualizations, there may not be. Uh, and all we want you to do is pay attention to that experience, be present with it. We're here to support you should you start feeling uncomfortable, but but we're going to continue to ask you to go go back in. And then we forewarn people about, these experiences can be uh, very, very difficult. And we'll give a metaphor. We'll say, so So, for instance, with psilocybin, you can get a lot of visualizations. And, and so as a thought experiment, let's suppose a demonic figure appears within your consciousness. And this is something more terrifying than you can imagine. It's made by you for you. And, uh, and your natural impulse is going to be to run or to fight it. And you'd want to do neither of those two. You, you want to just recognize it as an object of consciousness. And so the instruction is to be present with it and actually not running, not fighting, but to approach it with this kind of deep curiosity. And, uh, and some, you can, in in some cases, although I, I hesitate to do it, you can ask it what it's doing there, what it has to tell you, but that's reifying it. And that's and that's actually what you ultimately you don't want want to do. Um and then and then we'll say uh you know, as you approach it, the whatever fear you have may be initially intensified, but you just want to stay with that. And the guarantee is that it's going to change. It's not, it's not going to be stable. And it, uh, and at some point it might, it might dissolve. It might become disgusting. It might become beautiful. It might become transcendent, but it will change. And that sounds to me like meditation 101, right? About just staying, just being present with whatever it is and until you actually can see it's appearing in this in this larger uh, background. I, so, I really, I just want to emphasize this. I 
am fascinated by the instructions for being with the effects of a psychedelic are exactly the same instructions that we give being with whatever of the challenges that come up, that if we can notice them and not react, but rather just be, let them be in some way, have that curiosity. I, I always add a kind quality of attention if possible they change. And not only do they change, but there becomes more familiarity with that changeless background, which is more the truth of who you are than the changing objects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly right. So I've sometimes described uh, psychedelic experiences like meditation on steroids. I mean, (laughs) it's empowered. And the objects of consciousness come up in many cases, much more forcefully than they do in meditation, because meditation you can you can kick out of that you know pretty pretty easily. With psychedelics, not not so much, and people can really go down rabbit holes of misery. Uh, and if they really get caught there, that becomes kind of a classic bad experience, and people can be harmed. Uh, by those experiences, well, as they can be with meditation experiences as well. But I think there's something empowered about that. So, so one of the interesting therapeutic effects then of the psychedelics is that that people have these intense experiences in in which they have stayed with the experience, and we're mm-hmm. providing them the support to do that. I mean, people who get very uncomfortable, they want to take their eye shades off, they want to take their hair, they want to start talking. And we'll do that a little bit. And then we'll encourage it's time to go, go back in. Uh, And it's, and we think that's the important thing. Once people come out of that kind of experience, and and that doesn't have to, each psychedelic experience does not have to involve that. But, but if it does, people often come out empowered in a Mm -hmm. way that they didn't believe possible before. I mean, they literally have been walking on the razor's edge between insanity or this, this abyss of fear, you know, and, 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 and something else that's, that's real and it's present. And, and so they can come out empowered then in a way to tolerate suffering and not to escape uh, difficult experiences in the way that they never believed possible before. And I, and I think that has to do with the potential thera- immediate therapeutic effects that some people feel. I mean, if they have identified themselves as being addicted cigarette smoker, well, if you have that identity, that's exactly who you are. Uh, so you have to break that identity. And when they recognize that what it would take to uh, to break that identity, just like approaching the monster, is to put up with some discomfort. They're going to crave, but they they then may recognize that that uh, craving or discomfort is time limited. It's not it's not there forever and they and they come out with this ability to tolerate 
suffering to make choices going forward in their lives that they haven't been able to because they're so identified with whatever it is the pain or the you know the craving or depression and so we think that's operational in a variety of treatment contexts and may account for why there's this transdiagnostic efficacy or generality uh to the to the power of those because once once you recognize that you have that agency and the and the curiosity um then you're you're empowered to change things dramatically going forward you change your the narrative structure about how you hold yourself how you view yourself uh in the world and that can be hugely therapeutic and again it's parallel totally with meditation because even though it's not as intense perhaps every time you stay with something you're no longer as much a victim of that thing you are the awareness that's staying with and there's a lot more freedom and choice that that's the confidence or empowerment and they're very parallel and i'm i'm, I'm interested in Roland, cuz we're talking about the parallels the way these meditation and psychedelics really reinforce each other and you have seen so many people go through this and and dramatically transformed and and you say it's trans you know it's like with depression with addiction with anxiety can you say a little more about the benefits people experience. I mean, you've you've named now that empowerment. I can get through this. What else have you noticed in people that have gone through these experiences? Let's see. So, um, so there can be there can be these classic uh, mystical type experiences, and what I would say is that those emerge in in meditation as well. Uh, and so that's kind of a resetting of a sense of self and uh and a a different worldview the other, the other piece of those experiences is this profound sense of the interconnectedness of mm. all, all mm. things and so that 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 comes along along with it there are also experiences of just personal insight psychological insight mm. And, and and those occur in meditation as well. You know, it's it's almost like when you when you try to stop thinking about it and just let wisdom bubble up. It uh, it indeed does. I think within those experiences, and I guess we've been talking about it. There's just this sense that there's something much deeper, alive to be explored about the the nature of 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 being uh there is at least for me a sense of of benevolence within this larger story mm-hmm. of, of being there's um there's meaning and purpose that can emerge from these experiences deeper appreciation for beauty and for for love there's <laughs> there's so so many different 
components to it. I mean, uh, they are all flavors of what you're describing, which is a profound shift in identity. Yeah. That if yeah. you're resting in a small self, there's always fear and defendedness and a sense of something around the corner is going to take me out. Yeah. yeah. And there's a kind of um, a profound shift when you feel identify with something larger. And I think I'm just like to share a little personally that your your sequence of um, meditating, being very, very deep into meditation and then re-encountering psychedelics in a meaningful way mine was the reverse which is true for a lot of people where um in you know at the end of high school and then college um, i began exploring with psilocybin and mescaline and so on not not a whole lot but enough so it was a radical exposure or revelation of a much more large mysterious precious interconnected universe than I had touched before. And um, it was so visceral to me that this entire universe, all forms are the same living energy, and it's all sentient. And I was not better or worse than anything else. I was just belonged. And, you know, that, that dramatically affected my worldview. And it's what made me decide to stop using psychedelics and to join an ashram and spiritual community and and really center meditation for my life. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I remember the first time I had a psilocybin trip, I ended up making a clay Buddha. You know, I was like molding clay, and I, you know, it was it was pretty clear that you know just not I didn't need to use the chemicals and to go on a path of meditation. But I also want to add that I have revisited in recent years and the synergy is powerful and valuable too. So we can talk about that more, but um, I love what you're describing as the shifts that people experience and how much they're what happened in meditation. And I would even add that Without meditation, they don't become as well integrated into really the full expression of your life. That meditation is what really, in a daily way, brings it all alive. Yeah, I, I yeah, I totally agree with you. So, because of my interest in in meditation, we we have done therapeutic studies, but we've also done studies in beginning meditators and long term mm. meditators, uh, and we've just actually completed another study in religious clergy. But with respect to meditation, um, well, I think maybe the long-term meditators are the uh, the most interesting group. So what we did is recruit in people who had long-term histories of practice, tens of thousands of hours, done lots of retreat experiences, either had no psychedelic experiences or had they had an experience that was... 20 or 30 years ago. So they weren't present users. And there's such a a prohibition within some Buddhist communities, that, you know, the fifth precept, uh, that, that just makes that uh, taboo to use a psychoactive drug. But as we know, there are different interpretations of that. Uh, so they, they came in 
being curious about psychedelics, not having used it. And my sense of that was that they were hugely advantaged, not and not everybody, <laughs> but most were hugely advantaged by that history of of meditation practice because they were comfortable at examining the nature of of mind um so they could navigate these experiences more gracefully than many people who are come in and never have had that kind of experience we haven't actually published the results but just to give a just brief synopsis is is that most of those people i, I hesitate to say virtually all because there may be a few that didn't, but they really valued the experience with psychedelics. It added something new and essentially deepened their commitment to to meditation. No one, no one came out of that experience saying, "Oh, yeah, psychedelics are the are the path." Uh, if, if anything, they embraced more fully their meditation practice. In many cases, it jolted people out of a habitual practice that they had gotten into. They had come to a go-to practice of meditation on breath or visualization or you know whatever out out of their uh, tradition, and recognizing that the field to be explored is much greater than they they had imagined. But if anything, it brought in more enthusiasm for their practice and more respect for their practice because my my view is that the only way to achieve stability in in this investigation of the nature of mind is through practices such as meditation or other other embodied uh practices and psychedelics can be uh misleading and and certainly don't and in my judgment, represent a a path in and of themselves because there's just there's no stability in it, and and then certainly some people can get caught in the grasping for the uh, experience, and that could derail them. and And then there are certainly more risks involved in use of psychedelics than there are uh, in meditation. But I just I see them as just very close cousins and I've, I've actually come to think that there there really may be value and and we can't do that right now because of legality or that's certainly di- uh, discouraging but there really may be value in much a much uh, better investigation of where of how psychedelics can facilitate uh, the exploration of the nature of mind when put into context of of meditation and i think yeah if i had my preferences now for for preparing people for a, a psychedelic experience it would be to have them do some very significant mindfulness practice prior to ever going in there because they're going to be uh, advantaged by that and i think they're going to get a lot more out of that I'm with you completely, which makes me wonder, you know, how much communication is there between the contemplative traditions and 
the research that's now going on on psychedelics. I mean, how much exploration is there and how to weave them in a meaningful way as part of what people are invited into? Well, uh, so you, you certainly know uh, part of the story. When we started recruiting volunteers for the long-term meditation study, uh, we approached a whole number of meditation uh, teachers. And uh, I don't know what percentage, uh, but at least 50% said, no, uh, that's against our religion. Uh, you know, there's no place for psychedelics. It was really a, a firm stop. Uh, and, uh, and what I would say is uh, some of the teachers, particularly out of the IMS Vipassana tradition, were much more open and, and welcoming uh, to that discussion and thought that there was some uh, value in proceeding. My guess is that that's going to change uh, in time. I mean, the, it's already changing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you would know better than yeah, I. Yeah, this is the fast. It's just huge, huge interest. Um, and I think it's because of what you've pointed to that it's not looked at like you're doing some recreational drug to get away from your troubles. It's looked at as a very wholesome way of deepening your experience of reality if it's done with the proper set and setting if you have the if your intention is to awaken yeah. it serves awakening yeah. and of course that's not for everybody because as i mean i'd like you to address this there are certain um people that it's just not a fit for because of different types of mental dis emotional instability i think you've named uh bipolar and psychosis as two that would exclude people yeah yeah so um so there are a couple of you know significant risks that uh, uh that can uh come out of uh psychedelic exposure uh and first and foremost is that people under unsupervised conditions on screen conditions can just engage in dangerous behavior and they can get disoriented, they can get panicked, uh, they can be confused to the point that they do themselves or others significant harm. Uh, and so that needs, these have to occur under conditions that discourage that. But apart from that, there are biological predispositions that would seem to be very unfavorable. And so we historically have excluded people with any family history of psychotic disorder, like schizophrenia. And in uh, the concern there, although it, there's no control study that, uh, that proves this, but the concern there is that some people who are vulnerable to schizophrenia just may get pushed over the, uh, the edge with that. And I think that can happen in, med in intense meditation practice too. I do too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think it's just it's a dramatic when it occurs with a psychedelic, and I think that's it represents a real risk. There's no coming back from schizophrenia. I mean, that's a lifelong diagnosis as, as far as, as far as I know, uh, and so that that's a, a terrible outcome. There is concern in bipolar patients, particularly those that have uh, manic 
uh, manifestation uh, that psychedelics can trigger manic episodes and then along with all all the problems that can can occur along with that um however that's now coming under experimental investigation mm-hmm. there's just recently been published a study uh looking at the non-manic variant of bipolar and uh that uh appeared to be in this is just pi- very pilot work but it appeared to be uh treated uh, effectively the depression uh treated effectively with psilocybin so a bar completely against uh bipolar may not be be warranted but but these investigations uh still still need to go on can you give us just a brief bit of the science that the common pathways that thus far it's thought between how psychedelics work in the brain and how meditation works in the brain like how do they <laughs> both have the effects they have of giving us that enlarged sense of being? (laughs) Well, so one answer to that is our understanding of that is truly primitive. Uh, So the neuroscience of understanding how these experiences unfold with both psychedelics and in meditation uh, is is exciting there's a lot of research going on but again it's at its infancy so we we do understand something about molecular sites of action with uh the psychedelics we understand what pathways what neurological pathways uh are triggered uh, with that we know from imaging studies what areas of brain increase or decrease in activity after after a psychedelic we know something about the connectivity that goes on between different regions of brain you know there's been a lot of interest in looking at some of those network uh functions and one of the most intriguing things that bring meditation and psychedelics together is the observation that acute psychedelics produce a decrease in functioning of something called the default mode network. So there are many networks in brain that underlie and and subserve different kinds of uh, functions, uh, brain functions. And this default mode network is one that was discovered when they asked people just to sit alone in the scanner and do nothing. And of course, there is no such thing as as uh, doing nothing and that's the default mode network it comes online it's thought to be associated with self-referential processing kind of perseverative thoughts about one's uh oneself and that is decreased when a psychedelic is given and and that intuitively makes some sense because someone's drawn into the present moment that discursive voice is largely uh, largely turned off. And the interesting thing with, uh, with meditation, and this came out of Judd Brewer's initial observation in long-term meditators, is that's exactly what happens in long-term meditators. There's a decrease in this self-referential prophecy, processing, this default mode 
network uh, activity. But <laughs> it's much more complex than that. And we have a variety of other ideas of different networks that may be at play with psychedelics and surely must be at play with meditation. So I think the thing that I'd fall back on is how little we understand about what's going on in the brain. I mean, these network functions, we have billions of connections there. And this 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 is just a very crude understanding of, of what kinds of brain activities may might be at play here. So there is something called the hard problem of consciousness, and that is, is consciousness ever going to be explicable from a purely reductionistic and materialistic view? And uh, and we don't know we don't know the answer to that. And and many people within my field of neuroscience would take it as a given that it that it has to be that way, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, and, and we don't know. We need to be humble. Uh, about that. So there are these deeply intriguing questions about you know what this whole <laughs> process uh, is about. And, and, and you know we don't have a coherent physics. you know quantum theory hasn't been reconciled with conventional uh, physics. So there's so much that we uh, we don't understand. So at at the bottom line, there's a sense that we need to be very humble about what we do and don't know. But but my thought would be surely there have to be there's much more to learn about this integration and, and the similar and di- and differences between psychedelics and and meditation. And so that's a a huge opportunity for future research. Yeah, and it's a fascinating one. I mean, even if it can't if everything can't be reduced there's going to be some expressions of pathways that are going to be in common or not yes and the fact that the one that's been identified thus far as possibly correlating has to do with a decrease in centralizing a sense of a self certainly makes intuitive sense yes yeah that the you know as they say no self no problem <laughs> You know, it's like less the the less we're identified and centering throughout the day. What's happening to me? What's going to go wrong for me? The more we are taking in our world, and so there is a bit of freedom with that one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm curious for what you have noticed and what people have reported, but maybe I'll ask you personally, has been in the impact on relationships with others that follow um, these experiences. Did you notice in your own life a shift that was very pronounced in how you were relating to others as meditation and psychedelics deepen their impact? Yeah. So let's see. So one one thing I should say is that because we have run our studies in participants one at a time, uh, they're disadvantaged by really not having a group to share their experience mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and we've done that for scientific reasons. We want people to be independent observations. 
but we ran one study in beginning meditators where after they'd gone through these experiences, we brought them together as as groups. And just the the level of interaction and the sharing of experiences. And and so many, many of these people had been closed off from being able to talk about these experiences because if they're in if they're friends and family have no experiences of, of this sort. They're just, well, they're one of the features is they're ineffable. And, uh, and so it's, it brings forth a lot of excitement to, to share that. Um, I would say for, yeah, for me, uh, personally, as I, as I started to get reinvolved with psychedelics, um, yeah, I found, a community to discuss that with, to be of, of real deep value. Mm. Uh, and there's a, a sense when people get it, they're, they've come to this deeper understanding of who they are, uh, that, and I have, but I had that sense with, uh, with you, Tara, and people who have kind of deeply gone into meditation or spiritual practices, there's just a coming together. There's a recognition that comes right, right forward with that. And there's a sense of intimacy and closeness uh, that come. So, yeah, I, I think as I've become involved with that, uh, I've, you know, found a community among people who understand these uh, mm-hmm. experiences uh, but it doesn't have to be just psychedelic it's uh you know it's people who are deeply on uh, this path and there's you know I I mean I sometimes describe it as the awakening project I mean what mm-hmm. once, you awaken to what this is and the dilemma of the human condition and you and you look around and you see all of the suffering all of these people who are so identified with that narrative structure and and what you want for them is to awaken and and so it's not just through psychedelics but that's that's the sense of community and passion that comes uh, comes out of that mm, mm. you know as a just to kind of move into this because i i'm really curious i, I want to ask you more about how this diagnosis and how really facing the truth of impermanence you know how has the awakening through meditation and psychedelics served you in this including how you're relating to others who are relating to you yeah. as a person who has got a diagnosis. So maybe you could just speak about, you know, what what have you discovered as you're facing this chapter of your life? What have, what have, what is psychedelics and meditation taught you? Yeah. Well, this has been super fascinating to me, unexpected. So it was uh in November of last year, I went in for a screening colonoscopy, thought myself to be perfectly healthy. I take care of myself. I sleep well, I eat well. Uh, and I came out with a, a, a colon cancer diagnosis that 
very quickly was determined to be stage four metastatic to uh to liver and uh and so initially i mean this is a profound contemplation about the mortality and of course i i had done I, I thought I had done those <laughs> those contemplations previously. You know what what choices would you make? Were you told that you had a year to live, or six months, or a month, or a week, or a day? Uh, and I, and I found those to be really interesting. But here, all of a sudden, <laughs> I I had a stage four cancer diagnosis. Initially, the response was just shock and uh and it felt like a dream uh it couldn't it couldn't be real uh and marla and i spent uh spent a couple days just crying and uh and a little bit disoriented and then then very quickly i started to explore the the different psychological outcomes that that i i might inhabit given this diagnosis so one night i awoke uh in the middle of the night and just felt empty uh it, everything seemed so meaningless and uh and i thought where what is this so so because because of my meditation practice, because of I think in particular my meditation practice, you know there was this self inquiry that um, kind of immediately clicked in, and so yeah what yeah what is this, uh, what what's going on here, and I thought geez if I shared this with my psychiatric colleagues at Johns Hopkins they'd say Roland you're really depressed you know, and I thought boy that's that's not the place to, <laughs> that i that i want to be and I, I i woke the next morning with this kind of vivid sense that that was a place that i could inhabit uh and and a recognition that that, that was not a wise place to go and then i i kind of very quickly went through the different kinds of states that one could have so there could be just terror you know, there could be depression, could be ang- anger, could be uh, resentment, resentment toward medical profession that didn't uh, catch this uh, earlier. Uh, there could be um, fighting the cancer, uh, going to battle with it. And my one of my daughters on the first day of chemo, I sent her a picture from the chemo sweet and she and she texted me you know dad kick cancer's ass <laughs> and i thought that and I, I i i loved that she was trying to counsel me but i thought i i don't want to be at war with anything that doesn't that that doesn't feel like a good place to to be um and being a scientist and a skeptic you know i could not take on a, a protective belief, you know, oh, I'm going to heaven or this is karma and I'm going to be re- reincarnated and that's going to be great. Uh, I just, I won't rule out all those possibilities, but 
the prior probability I put on it is is diminishingly small. What I recognized is uh, that this was the perfect opportunity just to have gratitude for the for being alive, for the preciousness of of mm. human life, for this experience that we're in, and it's, you know, and that's what the that's what practice is, right? I mean, we're practicing being present with reality as it's unfolding. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, it just became really clear to me um, that is the wisest place I could go. I, and I haven't come out with a, a better one than that. So my practice has been one of, of gratitude and, um, and it's been astonishing. Uh, it, so, and, and I wouldn't have expected this, but uh, there was this sense of, of, absolute joy and love and 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 the ephemeral quality of life which i had contemplated but was now forefronted for me um uh came out uh just so so powerfully and so it supercharged my interest in leaning in and celebrating life with uh, with gratitude, and so I've said, and and I mean it that um, the experience of the diagnosis is one I treat as a blessing I've, because I've never been happier or more present or had more equipoise uh, than I have since the diagnosis. And that's not to say it's been easy because I've been through surgeries and chemotherapies that have lots of side effects have been physiologically degraded in the process but just by but by using each of those challenges actually as a call to be present with what whatever it is um it's just uh it it feels just really empowering and 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 lovely and so um uh, yeah i've said on on any number of occasions, what a tragedy it would have been uh, had I walked out of the house that mm. morning and been run over by a bus mm. because I thought myself to be awake before, but nothing compared to what I have now. So I, I literally would not, not trade this now. Yeah, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to have awakened as, as I have uh, without a <laughs> benefit of the stage four diagnosis but it's it's been astonishing and i'm i'm humble i don't i don't know whether i can maintain this sense and i you know i recognize the challenge of significant chronic pain you know that's one of the things that uh, that i'm deeply respectful of and know that i don't have that or other other things conquered what i am emboldened by is this deep desire to just push into whatever it is that emerges just and there's so many opportunities for this i mean you get a you get a yeah you get some quote unquote uh 
uh, bad news, the uh, tumor markers come up and they've you know, gone way up or, you know, failed a, a second course of, of chemotherapy. And that could be the opportunity for uh, despair. And, and yet, for me, it's just this opportunity like, okay, this, this is real. This is what, yeah, what's real here? What's going on? This, this is real. And this is life. And I should be celebrating every moment of this. And, uh, and so it's been, it's been wonderful. And then what's come up just recently. And one of the reasons that I'm happy to talk to you about it is that I think there's a, I think there's something important here. I don't know why I have had this experience. Part of it is, is, uh, is certainly based on meditation. Part of it is on psychedelics and we could talk about where those, uh, come in into play. Um, but there's something I, I feel like there's important to say, uh, about this and to communicate about this. So uh, up to this point, I have not as a, as a scientist ever talked about my own personal psychedelic experiences. And I, and I feel like I, I don't have room, not, Mm. I I need to be transparent, Mm. uh, completely transparent about what I'm going on. It's just, it's not, I can't, it's the authenticity that has to be there and be there fully right now. And there's something to say about that. And I think there's something to be learned uh, about, about this. And, and, and with respect to (laughs) this larger project of waking up, you know, to whatever extent, what I'm going through can be useful to other people, then I'm, that's just a wonderful opportunity. So so my Marla and I continue to, when we talk about this, to invite people in to celebrate this, mm. the, the wonder of this gift of and preciousness of life and consciousness and and reality, uh, hoping that people will u- use that in just the in a prompt to uh, continue to awaken. So, Roland, here's where I, I want to pause because the last few minutes of what you've shared are like there's nobody that wouldn't have their ears up in some way saying, "Wow, I wish that when it's my turn that instead of the depression or the fear that I could say, "Oh, that doesn't seem wise. What really would be wise?" And in some way land on gratitude that everything that that it's arising right now is an opportunity to deepen presence and to discover more about this mystery. I mean, I can't imagine that would not be the longing. I mean, I I feel it in myself. It's like, yes, this this would be what I would most wish were it were mortality closer in. And and here's the end. Um, Many, many people will wonder, how is it possible that there's even a sense of choice to not go into fear or depression or despair? It's like you you had some grace there that you could say, oh, that's not wise. 
And a lot of people say, whoa, I wish I could say that, but it's not like there's some feeling of choice. So what I want to invite you to do is speak more to how meditation and psychedelics has allowed you to have that freedom to choose gratitude. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. So I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, and where I find myself is I, in a place that I, I had never imagined or contemplated previously. So it's, it's just happened. But, but as I think about it, there, there are two pieces to that. One, one is certainly the foundation of meditation and understanding that, uh, as as we talked about that feelings and thoughts uh are appearances or objects that, that come into consciousness and and recognizing the ephemeral qualities of those and recognizing that you don't have to attach to those uh and uh and you know that's what meditation is isn't it i mean we go in with an object of focus and we recognize ourselves being pull, pulled away into the narrative uh, stream. And then we're constantly bringing ourselves, uh, bringing ourselves back to that. And it's so a, one of the transformative pieces of meditation was uh, when I, when I initially started practicing that is yeah, is de-identifying from that voice in in my head and recognizing it didn't uh, it didn't I didn't need to follow that. I, I remember very early on with meditation. Well, I guess I'd gotten fairly involved, but then I started paying attention to that voice in in my head for may, maybe the the first time and. Uh, and being kind of shocked about <laughs> about the the narrative of what it was saying the kind of the judgment the self judgment or you know the judgment of, of other people you know and how embarrassing it would be if if brain went on loudspeaker <laughs> and and this is, and you know and the, yeah the nasty things that it had to say about about me and um and then starting to see well that's just his voice and you know thank you very much but <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't i don't need that advice you know and so 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 learning to catch oneself when uh when things like that arise mm-hmm. uh has been really important so that's that's foundational but then i think psychedelics uh have empowered that uh because they it is mind on steroids things come up so forcefully in the field of of consciousness and they feel so overwhelming and and i think what i've learn from psychedelics and is that uh is to navigate past uh experiences that could be you know just 
dark rabbit holes of discomfort. Now, now there can be value in and insights that come out of having experiences that are that are unpleasant. Uh, so the idea is not to not not to completely push them away, but um, to recognize them as they come up. And so that's 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 basically been my experience. I I you know I can it's almost like I can see things really clearly uh, with respect to. Uh, attitudes or feelings that I just don't want to hold on to. I don't want them to have any, any power Uh, and, and just recognizing, Oh, that's, or that's fear or that's resentment. And then just defaulting to, but wait, (laughs) this is occurring. (laughs) You're awake, you're alive. You have this opportunity. Why would you want to go there? And, uh, and, and so I, I certainly did not, I felt myself to be aware of that partly awake, but, you know, but not to have that down in a sense that I could have imagined it's emerged since the diagnosis. So I, so, so I don't know, but that, but that explanatory kind of concept makes sense. It does, and it, in a way, it's it's a tribute to what mystics have said through centuries and centuries that if we deepen attention, we can unhook. Yeah, we can unhook. We do not have to be. It's like that message: don't believe your thoughts, and don't believe your thoughts, and don't believe your thoughts. It's like yes. we actually yeah. can can go with that, and. What I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is just bounce with you a parallel experience I had um, not that long ago that I've had in meditation many, many rounds through my life, and that was like you described, it was kind of supercharged on a psilocybin journey that wasn't, was just some months ago, and it was you know, it's like I could feel how my daily life had distracted me from the radicalness of impermanence. So as soon as the psilocybin took effect, it was radical impermanence. It was clear that everything was coming and going, including this body and all beings that I love. And, you know, I had my dog nearby who died a week or died a bit afterwards. And, was feeling my own the vulnerability of my aging body and so it was no it wasn't an idea of mortality it was my cells knew the reality of um and with that fear the fear came up deep reflex of fear of resisting of not liking of unpleasant and then, as you describe, a kind of leaning in, or I, I think of it almost like this, like surrendering, letting the fear be completely there without any resistance, and it became grief. It was like just the the sheer sadness or sorrow of cherishing and losing, cherishing and losing. And that, when I surrendered into it, became this portal to just absolutely cherishing the changing appearances of life it just be it was a cherishing and 
there was a profound shift in identity that I was no longer the fearful self for the body that was going yeah. that that I was I was this timeless presence that was witnessing and experiencing everything yeah. with a profound love mm-hmm. and what I have found Roland is that that comes a lot and the more I get familiar with timeless presence this field that is looking through these eyes at each other the tenderness that's inherent to that field the more that i become familiar with it the more it's absolutely a truth beyond any story about myself and the more i trust that the more i'm fearless and um i wanted to share with you a quote that I keep going back to that has to do with this, which is that if everything changes, then what is really true? Is there something behind the appearances, something boundless and infinitely spacious, innately loving, which is in which the dance of change and impermanence takes place? Mm. Is there something, in fact, we can depend on that can survive what we call death? Mm. And I want to share this because as I listen to you, it feels like it's a tribute to how there's been that learning on how to unhook, to let go of the identity with the changing thought, body, feeling, and arresting in something larger, and that you trust that. Mm-hmm. There's a trust that makes it possible for you to actually not go down the wormholes of getting identified with depression and fear. Yeah. And that to me is something that's possible for all of us. And it takes practice. And for many, the benefits of psychedelics will deepen that. Does, yeah. does that resonate for you? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it certainly does. So, yeah. So yeah, one comment is, so we, we, the first therapeutic study, I conducted was in, ironically enough, uh, cancer patients who were depressed and anxious for, for their <laughs> diagnosis. And and I think palliative care and end of life is a very great target for uh, psychedelics. Uh, but out of that study and other studies that we've done, it's very common for people after uh, these deeper psychedelic experiences to come out with some thought of something surviving death uh that there's you know whether it's consciousness or 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 something else so that's that's really uh quite common it's common in near-death experiences and it's common in psychedelic experiences in which people feel that they've had some kind of altered understanding or beliefs about uh, the nature of death. Um, for me, I mean, that, I, again, this is my, my skepticism. I, I just, I can't know, uh, that to be true. And I can't take that on with any, uh, with any certainty, but, uh, but I, but I can, can affirm that it's, it's actually very common, uh, that people have those, uh, experiences, but that, I mean, it, I mean, it get so one, so one of the interesting things, uh, you, you don't need a high probability, uh, of 
that outcome to make the process of dying to be one of deep curiosity, right? I mean, we don't <laughs> we don't know what happens when we die, uh, and uh, and and isn't it going to be interesting? <laughs> well, in a way, I feel <laughs> like we die many moments. I mean, dying happens throughout our life, yeah. And then there's the question of who dies. Because I think if you really think you're what's dying, there's too much fear to be curious. Yeah. And so my sense is, and, and it doesn't matter to me too much, the thing about, you know, does something survive beyond death? What really matters is a sense of the what we are that's larger than this changing body and mind. Mm-hmm. There's a resting in something larger. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I, yeah, I have another reflection on on my psychedelic experiences. So I certainly have not been immune to uh, to fearful experiences. And what I've found that the way that I have managed these experiences is when this kind of deep, foreboding fearfulness comes up. Uh, my immediate impulse is actually to go deeply into that. And if I'm in a, in a place that I'm ambulatory uh, and if it's under conditions where I'm with other people and I don't, (laughs) and now I'm giving advice that I wouldn't recommend for people to do, but I'll go off alone. uh, And, uh, and with the thought that I'm, you know, I'm I'm going off into this place that I don't understand. It it's there's some foreboding there. There's something fearful there. Some sense that I'm walking toward my own death. Mm. Uh, and then then when I get deeply quiet with that, and then the inquiry is okay. So where do I find myself? And uh, and and what I'm aware of is this this energetic feeling, uh, and it's and and somehow my mind has turned it into fear. But as I really explore that, it's like, well, no, that's one label you could put on this. But there's this energy. Mm. There's this this incredible energy that I'm feeling. And and what is that? And uh, and then and then very often I'll open my eyes. And uh, and fortunately, I'm very often in a nature situation, and I'm just overwhelmed with the the beauty and the appreciation. Mm. Mm. And it's and the sense is that this is the energy of awakening and it's manifesting and this is such a and such a gift and and then what was experienced as fear is is just felt to be this huge outpouring of gratitude and celebration uh that uh that i feel i really need to share share with people um and so i think that that's part of what has come come up for me that the uh 
the way to go into some of the darkest feelings and 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 recog- and recognize that uh it's just it's just a, an opportunity if you just lean into the present moment and ask what's real there you know there's nothing but gratitude and celebration that comes out of that that totally resonates in a way we're circling to the teaching right from the start of when it's intense if you don't resist if you don't push away just being with in it enlarges your own the presence that's here so there's room for what's there and you can relate with that gratitude yeah. which is just so beautiful yeah. and so a question for you because you because of what you described about um your own way of kind of going off on your own you've guided lots and lots of people now and how many would you guesstimate you guided on journeys uh let's see well i've uh i've, I've been with hundreds uh hundreds but uh but n- not all of those are in the session room so i've right. spent a lot of time before and after sessions i very often go into session room immediately after the session uh, but so I mean part of my curiosity is what is it like for you as a guide mm. to bear witness to people and i and I want to say where the reason I'm asking is because just hearing from Jonathan his process of going in deep and getting into something that was difficult and painful and having uh you and the other facilitator, your presence, and having it be so utterly kind and so close in was a part of the field that helped him to open larger. And I just wonder what it's like for you to be able to hold a space for people in that incredibly intimate way. Yeah. Let's see. So, and different guides would handle this differently. But I mean, for me, it's an opportunity to go into meditation. Mm-hmm. And then there is some sense I have, I don't know how, what to make of it, uh, about, about entering into a shared space of, mm-hmm. of the, in the field of consciousness. And I don't know if that's imaginary or not. I certainly have had very powerful experiences of that i certainly th- i think that's one of the benefits of a group retreats mm, because there yes. is there's 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 something that happens yeah, uh, yeah. and uh and so there's uh the opportunity to guide and to be present is a many many day long a treat retreat mm, in mm. many cases but then if you if someone is struggling, then this is the opportunity to practice compassion and, yeah. and love, and and that's lovely too. Mm-hmm. So there's 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 something very uplifting about having the privilege to sit with people. Mm. Well, the compassion and love was certainly felt, and and this is a little bit of a segue because um, I do believe that the meditations, the psychedelics, it wakes us up in a way that compassion and love flow more freely. And you have a vision, you know, really 
to do with our larger society mm-hmm. that I want to just invite you to share a bit of how psychedelics, my language is it can just serve our collective evolution. So I just hope you'll share the vision and also share a bit about the endowment because I feel like it's such an exciting possibility. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So the diagnosis has opened so many wonderful opportunities and doors uh, for me. And a number of them came directly out of writing my will. And in this case, it came to the point of charitable contributions and uh and you know this is a couple months after uh, uh the diagnosis and my initial thought was okay i'm I, what i've been doing in recent years is uh making charitable contributions to give well it's part of the effective altruism movement and they they really vet charities and i thought this is easy i'll just do that and then i awoke the next morning and and thought you know what is it that I really would like to give? And as I thought about that, it's uh, it's the very thing that I've been l- longing for for myself and others. It's what brought me into meditation, and, and it's what has empowered my interest in in the work with psychedelics. It's you know what I really want is contributing to the awakening of of humankind and you know that we're all in this together that we need to take care of one another that we need to take care of this planet that we're in uh and that there's something incredibly beautiful about that and of course what i do is science uh i'm a researcher and i and i'm committed to the scientific method as being the most powerful tool we have to unpack to unpack reality and and we're far from having done that uh but there's no reason that the tools of science can't focus in on the awakening experience and and with psychedelics we have the most powerful tool scientific tool that's ever come available to study that. And that's the very nature of what, what we've been doing. Our research to date has been primarily focused on therapeutic outcomes. And that's just pragmatic. That's uh, the funding is there for therapeutic outcomes. There's cultural acceptance of that. But what I think is the much bigger and more important project is what are the implications for this, these kinds of experiences, uh, for health, otherwise healthy people, or or people who don't carry a diagnosis, in any case, and I think it's so important because uh, if if we can truly understand the nature of what creates this uh, this sense that we're all all in this together the pro-social aspects that come out of that that we need to take care of one another uh you know there's this deep ethical implication that arises from that and it really boils down to the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you and we need that and now i'll talk very broadly about 
how do how do we manifest uh, that? We we need to develop cultural institutions that can. Well, we need to understand the process and then develop cultural institutions uh, that can effectively bring our culture and and society into wise use of these compounds. And we need to evolve a set of ethics that go beyond the divisiveness of uh, religious teachings. And so so that's it. There's this idea of a that science can move forward this project of understanding awakening and and then eventually the hope is and this is multi-generational yeah the hope is that this then gets seeded into culture and it actually has to go worldwide for this to to work but the importance of it is no less in my opinion the survival of our species that right now we, you know, and it's science that has created some of the the risks to this. Is we we have a number of technologies that are existential in terms of their threat. I mean, that could be bioweaponry or nuclear weapons or climate change or AI uh, risk, uh, and and there'll there'll be others, and uh, and and yet our ethical and our moral and our religious teachings are pretty primitive right now and they're divisive and they and they actually increase the chances that uh these existential technologies may be used against us and uh, and so that's what this project is about it's to advance research on this very topic we've been talking about Tara and that's how, how do we awake and uh, awaken uh, people and culture? What what's the nature of these experiences? How do we optimize uh, what creates that? What vulnerabilities are there? You know, what genetic factors are there? How do we sustain those? And I think that's uh, very very important because the you know there's a lot to do to integrate these experiences into into the human condition. So so my initial thought was okay that's what I want and I don't have a big estate so maybe I could I could put together uh you know a a small endowment and endow a research lecture at Hopkins on what what I call uh psychedelic research into uh secular spirituality and well-being and uh and then I thought, you know, I, I might have an I might have some goodwill in the community to to reach further if I created a professorship and a research fund. Um, and so that's that's this vision that's come out of this. So we, we've established an endowment at Hopkins, uh, and uh, and I'm shooting for 20 million dollars but every 25 dollars is deeply appreciated and uh we've established this endowment that creates a professorship so that some that someone is appointed and they never have to worry about their salary they're focused in on the on the intent and purpose of this and that's to understand these deeper 
uh, principles of uh, awakening. And it also creates a research fund, uh, which will pay for some of this research going on. And research for psychedelics is really quite expensive. And when it's an, an endowment, it's uh, generating only a portion of that because the endowment is managed in perpetuity, that is forever, as long as Johns Hopkins exists as an institution. So this is this is really near and dear uh, to my heart because it carries forward what exactly what we've been talking about, uh, Tara. Yeah. The vision is that science has something deeply important to say. Uh, about this, but it's creating an engine to conduct this kind of research in perpetuity forever. Mm. And and the interesting thing is that I don't think the answer, <laughs> we may never have the, you know, the complete answer to the question, but this, but there's so little we understand about the nature of consciousness, the nature of these experiences, the nature of what this project is that we're in. And I'm not sure there's going to be a single answer. So in perpetuity sounds, sounds really, uh, really good to me. Yeah, it's a nice word. It rolls off the mouth, right? Perpetuity. (laughs) So I just, I just want to say, um, because I am certainly contributing myself that I think that there's all sorts of good efforts for transformation going on around the globe and that nothing will work if we don't evolve our consciousness. Everything comes out of consciousness. And consciousness is evolving, and we have to facilitate it. I mean, the forces that are bringing us down of unprocessed fear and, you know, bad othering are so strong. And and the more stressed we are by... Uh, you know, a climate that is, you know, causing catastrophes, the stronger those energies get. So we really need to very intentionally facilitate consciousness. And I look at this as one of the um, pathways that has unbelievable promise. So I just want to encourage anybody who's listening to just consider the implications. I mean, it's it's the science, but then of course it'll have to partner with all these other institutions in our society to make available in a way that doesn't privilege some people over others this extraordinary way of kind of, you know, fast starting or you know kind of booting up our our systems to really wake up so um and we will um you know be posting with this talk a link that'll give you all the information you need but i i interrupted you roland so anything else you wanted to say on it please oh well uh, let me just say that the the link is uh, griffithsfund.org so it's g r i f f i t h s fund one word dot uh, dot org no no thank you for that i mean in the direction this research it's going to go in many different directions but one of the directions will certainly be this how do we facilitate maximum outcome out of these experiences and the marriage here of meditation and mindfulness practice with these has to be a central focus to that yeah yeah, no, it's, you know, many of us are putting our lives into kind of, can we help more and more people to use meditation to wake up their hearts and minds? And this goes absolutely hand in hand. 
Now, the last thing I want to ask is I know for myself that I, I've developed this thing when I give a talk and I'll say to myself, well, if this was the last talk I was going to ever give, what would it matter most for me to say? I might have already said it, but what would be the real kind of gist of what I'd want to offer to others? And I'm just wondering if I say that to you again, just to send some of, because we've covered a lot. You know, what is it that most matters that you most want to leave people with? Mm. Well, thank you. Um well, it's exactly what we've been talking about. Uh, what I want for myself and others is uh, is to awaken to this uh, incredible miracle. Is not too strong a word that we find ourselves in. That we're these highly evolved, sentient creatures that can feel and touch and and walk the earth, and we've developed communication, and we've developed science but we're in we've come to recognize that we're aware that we're aware that we're in the middle of this incredible mystery that science doesn't even begin to understand and we do not have any understanding about the nature of consciousness nor do we have a coherent physics so it's an invitation to celebrate and uh and that's what I've said to people out of this diagnosis, but it's uh, uh, but it flows from everything that we've talked about. Is yeah, let's celebrate, lean into this moment of the for the gratitude of being awake. Mm. Thank you. Well, in that spirit, my friend, so much gratitude to be able to celebrate with you in this way blessings. And thank you, friends, for joining us. This is one you may want to listen to a number of times. I'm really, really grateful for your attention and presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.